and uh, um, listen to his word, feast upon it, and by God's grace to, set, to be set free more and more unto the people God's called us to be. I'd ask if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, or the book of Romans, Matthew chapter 18, excuse me. This past week was Presbytery, as you know, and usually during a Presbytery I I'll verge from what I'm usually doing or whatever. And uh, we're going to go and look at a, a parable uh, this morning. So rather than Romans um, 8, we're going to go to Matthew 18 this morning. We're going to go to the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, Matthew 18. And uh, wonderful. Let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the word of our God as we read it. Please stand with me. Hear now the word of our king. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought uh, to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. And the slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And he was unwilling, however, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I have had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this covenant moment where we have the privilege of fellowshipping with you. In the same spirit as John who laid his head upon your breast and looked upon you as you spoke to your people. God, grant us the grace to do just the same by faith. And Lord, now to fellowship with you. Lord, give me grace to preach your word with fidelity. May you take this, your word, and grow us in your grace. We pray all this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. You know the text, whether you know it or not. You know this text. It's the text about church discipline. And the process is, is frightening and scary and difficult, but it goes something like this. According to verse 15, if, you, if you're living in, in the covenant body and you see a brother or sister 
who has fallen into sin, bound by sin, you're called to go to him in private and to entreat them and to work with them unto their repentance and restoration. If they won't listen to you, verse 16 comes in, you're called to bring another person, another brother or sister with you, to go and talk to this brother and sister and, and work towards their repentance and faith and restoration. If they will not listen to that, verse 17a, you're called then to tell it to the church. And uh, that means going to the leadership and saying, man, this, this brother and sister this is what we've done and, and this is what's going on and, and they just need help. And so at that point, then the, then the leadership would get involved and we would hopefully work towards their re- repentance and faith and restoration. But if they should still be recalcitrant and not um, repentant, if they would not re- respond, then the next step would be to deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of their body unto the preservation of their soul. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the process of Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And it is not a fun process. It's scary. It, 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 if, if you hear that and go, man, I, I don't want to participate in that. If, say, you're, you're hearing me describe that, and you think there's someone in your life that maybe they need to be talked to, but you're, you're, you're happy to send an email to a leadership and saying, you should check on so-and-so. Brothers and sisters, that's how all of us feel. That's how the leadership feel. It's scary, and that's why Jesus Christ appends this with this promise. And that promise is Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my, uh, together in my name. The context is discipline, not prayer. There I am in their midst. Brothers, we need that promise. We need to know that when you're dealing with, with someone struggling and, and you don't want to go and confront them, you don't want to talk to, uh, to them, not because you don't love them, but because you, you, you fear their reproach. You fear what they're going to say. It's great to know that God is present there. Okay, that's church discipline. Now, that's a difficult process. We'd all agree with that. Yet there's another scenario that can be just as difficult and I think in some ways even more difficult for us personally. And that scenario is what happens when you go to a brother or sister in accordance to Matthew chapter 18 and you share with them how they've hurt you and they say, sorry, will you forgive me? And then they turn around and do the same thing again. And then you go and you talk to them again and they say, sorry, will you forgive me? They keep saying sorry and they keep saying, will you forgive me? But they don't change. They keep on hurting you. Brothers and sisters, how many times do you approach that person? How many times do you address their sin? How many times do you and I forgive someone who sinned against us? That's the question that prompted the the parable That is before us this morning. Peter heard Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And he ran to right where I was just at. And that is, what about those people who seem to perennially sin against you? You know those rude people? Those people who, are, who, who really don't see other people, they just see themselves and they, they trample under hearts all the time and you call them out all the time and that doesn't seem to change anything in them. God, what about them? How many times? Well, that brings us then to our parable, 21 and following, where we see it. Notice with me, therefore, the context. We begin that in verse 21 through 23. Then, more literally, at that time. So Christ told this, and the moment he told that, at that time, Peter came forward, and he asked this question. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? 
Now, you need to realize, maybe you do or don't, but Peter's being generous here. He's being incredibly generous. Um, It is said that in the Old Testament, God forgave the enemies of God's people three times. So that created a standard in Judaism that you're only obligated to forgive someone three times because that's the divine standard. So we read in different Jewish literature, Rabbi um, Yos ben Hanina, uh, I'm sorry, Hanina said, he who begs uh, forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. The next one, Rabbi Jose ben uh, Yehuda said, if a man commits an offense, very, very near, a near Easter, if a man uh, commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. If he commits a fourth time, they do not forgive him. Um, very near, near Easter. But that's exactly the mentality that what uh, God's people were living under when Peter came and said, Lord, how many times should we uh, uh, forgive? Seven times? Now, Peter chose a holy number. Seven is the number of uh, completion. So no doubt he chose a number that, that perhaps it came from his own generosity or maybe it came because he knew that would be quite an incredible statement because the rabbis say three. Maybe he was uh, secretly thinking, saying seven, you know what Jesus is going to do. He's going to give him the Lord of the Rings um, uh, compliment. You, know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's the double tap, right? So, you know, you know, seven times, you know, yeah, you got it, Peter. But you know what's, what's interesting about that? Peter's seven times versus three is basically the same as the three. And the reason why is because both positions hold to that forgiveness is something can be measured. And if it's measured, it can surpass that measurement. No, what, it, what, 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 what God wants is something more than that. And so that brings us then to Christ's response to this generous proposal. 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So he took G, uh, Peter's generous number, multiplied it by 70, and came up with a, a number that's beyond counting. The, so it's not 490, it's beyond counting. In other words, brothers and sisters, there, there is no limit to the forgiveness you ought to give. And the reason why is because what God is after when it comes to saving grace in our lives is not the conduct of forgiveness, though that's important. He wants a mind, a worldview that is a worldview or a mind of forgiveness. He wants forgiveness to be something that just characterizes. It's the overflow of our lives. That's the idea. We could just as well say, how many times should a husband love his wife? How many times um, should you obey this commandment of God? If you are asking that question, you're not, you don't have a heart that wants to obey out of, out of response to God's grace. You've got a heart that's trying to get away from obedience. How many times? Just seven times? Great. I'm up to six on this one. One more time, and I can write, write them, you know, them off. No, God wants the character of forgiveness. And you're going to see this throughout this parable. He's after the character, the mind. Think of the mind of Christ. Have this mind, this attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He wants the mind that you and I would have the mind of forgiveness. That where we go, everywhere we go, we are people who forgive. That's what he's after. Um, 
And thus, with that, Christ, to demonstrate this, tells a parable. Notice with me verse 23. For this reason, or in light of what I just said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. First of all, notice that the word slave is used in its broadest possible sense in reference to ones in submission to a sovereign. You could translate this servant, really. Okay, A servant, a slave, is someone, in, in this context, who's submissive to a sovereign. The entire kingdom would be the king's servants, the king's slaves. Okay, um, If the king says jump, you would, you would go, right? Um, as we'll see when we get uh, to Esther, in that c- culture, um, at that time, when a king drank at a, a public gathering, that you drank. When they didn't drink, you didn't drink. Okay, so you were his servants, you were his slaves, you were his servants. So the, the, the context here is that of a king dealing with one of his servants. Now, in the, because of this parable, we know this servant is a tax collector. Okay, let me give you a little bit of background on that. So Rome at this time was the one that was overseeing God's people at this point in redemptive history. And Rome had a practice that when they conquered a region, they charged that reason that region for the battle. So if they conquered, you know, Spain, they would charge Spain for that battle, even though Spain did nothing to deserve conquest. Um, Because of that, um, taxation was a massive, massive issue in Rome. They had two primary taxes. They had a toll tax, and that toll tax was basically like our income tax. It was based upon what you make. And then there was a ground tax, and that was based upon what you owned. Okay, well, with the toll tax... They had a system where you could, once every five years, at public auction, go and purchase the right to collect the toll tax. Now, the reason you would do that, these are upper-class people, of course, a lot of money. The reason you would do that is because Rome would would say, from Palestine, we want, uh, say, 200 talents every year. Well, if you, as, a, as, a, as the one who won that, um, said, I want 400, whatever you raised above and beyond the two would be yours t- to keep. So it was a, a, a lucrative job, a lucrative um, adventure, okay? So um, you would do that. You would go, and, and every five years, you would auction. If you won that bid, you would be known as a publicani, okay? That's the publicani. The publicani, I got Africa and I got Palestine. I've been on those lands and I got them. Now that publicani, upper class, he's not going to, he lives in Rome. He's not going to go down there. So what he would do is he would hire out individuals, multiple individuals. He would, he would sector up his area that he just purchased the rights to into regions. And he would hire people to oversee those regions. They're known as tax farmers or tax contractors. And their job was to make sure that whatever the publicani said was necessary to raise, they would raise that. And the way it worked was, if they raised more, they got to keep it. So, of course, it was wonderful to be a tax farmer. Zacchaeus was a tax farmer. He just wasn't a tax uh, collector. He was a tax farmer. So he had a lot of money. Okay, well, then after that, the tax farmer, you know, that's, it's a dangerous job to collect taxes, especially if you're, if you're collecting taxes in Palestine um, from the Jews. So typically, the tax farmer did not, uh, they didn't raise taxes. They didn't uh, collect them. What they would do is they'd hire out local people. And those local people, like Matthew, he was a tax collector. They would be the ones who did the actual job of raising, of, of, of uh, getting taxes, collecting taxes. And that would be Matthew. 
Okay, well, we're talking about a publicani here. So a publicani is approaching his king. It's probably at the end of one year, and it's his job to come and bring all of the tax proceeds that he contracted at to the, the king and um, place it into the uh, um, depository. And that brings us then to the sympathy. All right, so that's the context. Now let's look at the sympathy. And when he, the king, had begun to settle them, the accounts of the publicani who were brought before him, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now to us, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but 10,000 seems a pretty big number, so you would presume that's a lot of money. Especially in the light of verse 25, which says he couldn't repay it, that tells you it must have been a lot of money beyond this uh, publicani's means. Um, So it is a lot of money. However, let's begin. First, talent is not money. It's a weight. And that day, it was the weight you put on as the counterbalance on a a balance. And if you have a massive balance, like this case, a talent could be pretty heavy. Now, how much would be a talent? How much are we talking about here, 10,000 talents? Well, we don't know specifically, but we do have some comparisons we can make. For example, in the Old Testament... Um, during the, the time when they were building the temple, the total amount of gold that was given to build the temple by God's people, according to First Chronicles 29, was 8,000 talents. Okay, it's a lot of, that was a lot. Um, a little bit uh, later, um, the total amount of um, taxation that Solomon imposed upon his kingdom, First Kings 10, was 666 talents. This publicani owed 10,000 talents, not 600, not 1,000, but 10,000 talents. We can get a little bit more specific because we do know from ancient literature what an attic talent was worth. An attic, and, and one attic talent was worth 6,000 denarii. Now, denarii was the, was a denar was what was given to a Roman soldier for one day's work. So that's not what the common man got. They got less than a denar. Okay? So, but one talent, not 10,000, not 1,000, one talent was worth 6,000 denarii. Well, 6,000 denarii is, would be the equivalent of 16 and a half years of work for a soldier. Okay? If you keep on multiplying that out, um, if you use the standard um, of a life of 60 years, it would take 166,600, well, forget the 60. It would take 166,667 years to amass 10,000 ta- uh, talents, according to the addict talent, okay? In terms of lifetimes, an average of 60 years, it would take 2,777 lifetimes to accumulate 10,000 talents. So, in essence, Christ said, this guy owns 10 tons of gold. Well, you know what the, right now the going rate for an ounce of gold is? A ton of gold is 2,000. So, 2,000 pounds. 10 tons of gold. Brothers and sisters, you'd be a multi-multi-billionaire if you had 10 tons. So that's the idea here. It is a massive amount. So Christ says, there's this publicani, and he owes... 10,000 talents. Um, <laughs> incredibly serious, okay? Verse t- uh, 25. But since he did not have means t- to repay, no duh, his Lord c- uh, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had, and repayment to be made. Now, there's no way selling him and his children would make the, re- the repayment, but we do know this, that it would have been, uh, certainly, it would be a, uh, an example to everybody else. 
Okay, and now the fact that he would be commanded to be sold tells us he's at fault, which tells you he it was his fault. He actually ran away with it. He he spent it. Whatever he, um, but he did it. It's his fault, and uh, he's going to be put into prison. He and his children into slavery. Um, as an example, this is what happens if you cross the king. Verse twenty six: The slave therefore falling down prostrated himself before him. Brothers and sisters, in that day, this is going above and beyond. You would bow a knee before a king. This guy, waterworks are going to full. He's on his face before the king, and he is begging for his, for his freedom. He's prostrated before him saying, have patience with me, and I will, re- I will repay you everything. He can never repay him everything. But now we know he's not sincere. We know this is, he's self-righteous. But at this point the, in this story, the king buys it. He goes, wow, you know, I feel bad for this guy. So we read in verse 26, the slave, or 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion. He was moved in his bowels and released him and forgave him the debt. What an important example for you and I when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. As 10,000 talents is a sum that we could never repay. And yet that was the sum that was forgiven. The implication is, is exactly what we saw with seven times 70. Our forgiveness has no boundaries. That's the idea here. It goes way beyond what can be thought or even imagined. You can't imagine 10 tons of gold, how much room that would take, how much money that would be. Okay, we can't imagine 10,000 talents, or I'm sorry, 10,000 tons of gold. We can't imagine 10,000 tons uh, are of talent we can't but the but the disciples as shocked as they would have been at the forgiveness unbelievable nevertheless they would have understood hyperbolically speaking there is no boundary to our forgiveness and the reason why brothers and sisters is because when god saves a soul when he saved you and and me he changed our character and part of the transformed character is a character that that therefore logically speaking will be a people of grace. We're saved by grace. We therefore will be gracious people. Okay, at least that's where we're going to grow in sanctification. We're going to grow towards graciousness. That's what God's after. He's after a heart of graciousness. Okay? And so he tells this parable to say there is no limit. Why? Because brothers and sisters, to, to, to measure how much you should obey God is the wrong picture. The picture is, it's not how much you obey him, it's will you obey him? I will, Lord. Will you love him? I will, Lord. How much will you love him? That's the wrong question. That's not a question that comports with a person who has a relationship with God, right? How much will you love God? Well, uh, limitedly, but I will love him. No, God, I love you. I love you. That's my mind. I want to serve you. I want to honor you. God, I'm not going to look at your commandments and say, hey, I fulfilled that one three times. Now I can, on the fourth one, I get a buy. No, I want to serve God because Christ made us zealous for good deeds, Titus 2, 13, right? In his salvation, he makes us zealous to serve God. That's the mind that Peter, or that, that, that Christ is teaching his disciples here. Now he could have stopped there, but he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because he wants this to be personal. And so he takes this, And he brings it one step further to our homes where we live. Notice the cruelty. Verse 28. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who had 
a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. The implication here is that the grace of that king, the mercy of that king, did not tra- did, did, meant not a whole lot to this uh, public honey. What, what was really heavy, what weighing heavy upon his mind, and as sinners you can identify with this, was his pride, his wounded pride. How did, how did it happen that I would have to prostrate before that king? Man, I'll tell you what, I'll never do that again. That was the most disgusting. It was a bad experience. I don't want to ever do that again. So why did I do that? Who's, whose fault is this? You know whose fault it is, is I'm too gracious. I allow all these people to owe me money. You know, these tax uh, farmers, they don't pay up when they should. So he goes out, the way that a text reads, he goes out and he looks for one of his tax farmers. And he finds one who owes him 100 denarii. He says, pay up what you owe me. No more Mr. Nice Guy. I got in trouble and I will never get in trouble again. All that self, uh, self-righteousness. I was, my, my, my reputation is wounded. My sense of, of, of who I am has fallen Right? So let's get this change. Where's my 100 denarii? And the tax farmer says exactly what you would expect. He's, he, his fellow slave. Notice the emphasis. Fellow slave. He's just like him. He falls down and began to treat him saying, boy, when did, when did we see this scene? Have patience with me and I will repay you. That's the exact words that the publicani just said to the king. Now, you would think that that would have opened his eyes. Whoa, this is a Oh, I should forgive this person. But it doesn't. It does not open this man's eyes. Why? Because this man is relating to the world based upon a wounded conscience, based upon a wounded track record, right? It, it's, and when, you're, when it's all about your uh, performance and you get called upon about your uh, performance, you rarely are humbled. What you are is you're embarrassed and you're angry that you've been signaled out. And that's this man. So he goes and says, um, um, he's, uh, the text goes on, he was unwilling, but went and threw him into prison, debtor's prison, until he should pay back what was owed. Interesting. Notice the slave's situation is exactly that of the uh, publicani, but this uh, publicani just didn't see it. So you got this incredible shocking story. 10,000 talents forgiven. 100 denarii? Nope, you're going to prison. Incredible. And that leads us then to the retribution. Verse 31. So when his fellow slaves, some of the other tax farmers, most likely, when his fellow slaves of the tax farmers saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord, the king, all that had happened. Understandably, that's what would happen. 32, then summoning him, the publicani, his lord said, the king, you wicked servant, you scoundrel, would be another way that you could translate it. I forgave you all that debt. Debt is in the emphatic position in the Greek. Debt, I forgave you. All that debt. Um, that's, that's the emphasis. The amount that was uh, forgiven because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? More vividly, Hendrickson, was not mercy your lasting obligation? And that's the character part, brothers and sisters. When you're saved by grace, mercy becomes the world in which you live. Grace becomes the world in which you and I live. Now you may say, that's not me. 
Well, yeah, so this is inspiring. This is what, what's, how God's going to mold and shape us to become. Because once you're saved by grace, God wants us to live in grace. Once you're saved by his mercy, he wants us to live and breathe and move in a life of mercy. So he says, was not mercy your lasting obligation? And his Lord, the king, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay that which was owed him. All right, let me give you a couple definitions here to to take the edge off that last statement. First of all, torturers. The word for torturers originally was used of coin testers whose job it was to, to test the quality of the coin in a crucible. So in, in, in that day, I'm going to pay you with coins. And what I'm going to do is I've got a coin tester here. And he's going to take one of your coins and melt it down. And we're going to see wh- whether that's pure gold or not, or per- uh, pure uh, silver. We're, we're going to see what, what coins you actually are giving me. Okay, so this word does not mean torture. It means temper. Okay. In fact, it was later used of soldiers and teachers who, whose job it was to mold and shape the character of people. They were the temperers. Okay. Now, later on, it would become a word for torture. Um, but primarily, the idea in this concept, would you notice, it's not torture. It's temper. Okay. This, this king doesn't hate this man. In fact, we know in the parables, when, when judgment is rendered, the language is... Where, the, um, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not the language here. The language here is temper this guy. I'm going to give you to the temperers, and they're going to mold and shape your character so that you will become a forgiver, a mercy, someone characterized by mercy and grace. In fact, notice to what end? Verse uh, 34 is exactly what I just said. Until he should repay all that was owed him. Now there's some debate as to what that means. He, the very first he, until he should repay, that's the publicani. That's the guy who owes 10,000 talents. The question is, who's the second relative pronoun? Who's the him? Well, in the Greek, there is no him. The text literally reads, until the publicani, until he should repay all that was owed. So the question is, what's the publicani paying? Now, some say his 10,000 talents. So he's going back to, he's going to be tempered. His character is going to be tempered until he repays 10,000 talents. A problem with that is, one, he can't repay. We know that. There's no way in in, in 2,765 lifetimes you could pay off 10,000 talents. It's 2,766, not 65. You can never pay those off. But then secondly, brothers and sisters, this is corresponding to God. And the implication on that stance is is that if you and I don't forgive, you'll lose your salvation. That is certainly not being taught here. So many today, most today, take this to refer to the tax farmer. To the publicani pays off the tax farmer's debt. In other words, forgives it. Look, I forgave you. We're going to tamper you to the spirit of Forgiveness wells up in your heart and you say, you know what? What a fool am I? 10,000 talents? How could I ever hold anything against you? That's the idea here. So notice what God's after. He's after the character of mercy and grace in our lives. That's what he's after. He's not after you and I. All right, my ledger here. Who, who ever heard here? 
All right, or, or better yet, who's hurt me? Well, that person hurt me. Okay, I got to go and get them to say, I'm sorry, right? And, and if they don't, I won't forgive them. That's not what he wants us to be. Love does not take account or record of sins, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 7. Okay, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Okay, that's, love doesn't do that. Why? Because love is driven by the grace and mercy of, of God, and that being driven, therefore, loved loves. It forgives. It's, it's, it's I be, receive mercy. My life becomes a display of mercy. That's the idea. Notice with me, therefore, the significance. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Do you see it? Characteristic. He doesn't want just forgiveness. He wants a character of a heart forgiveness where you and I look upon each other with grace and mercy and compassion. That's what God's after. And guess what? We, 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 we have stated here a, a declared end of God's discipline in your life. We've talked about this. God's always disciplining us. This tells you one of the things where God's bringing you, and that is to the place where you and I can be characterized by mercy. Well, if God's doing that, how do you suppose he's going to character? How does God cultivate a heart of, of, of mercy in, the, in God's people's lives? Well, by bringing people in your life who need mercy. You wonder, man, another conflict. Lord, why does conflict follow me? Right? God's, God's molding and tempering us. He's shaping us in and through all things. To make us a people who would forgive from the heart. What an important parable for us today. Because, brothers and sisters, forgiveness, I think, is one of the chief struggles in our Christian walks. One of the chief, perhaps undervalued struggle that all of us struggle with. If you came in here and you're going, you know, I got a problem with uh, forgiveness, but I'm the only one. Or for whatever reason, I'm characterized as people in conflict uh, with me. Why me? Brothers and sisters, you're not the only one. The Bible has multiple exhortations about forgiveness. Luke 7, 40 through 50, 17, 4, Matthew 5, 7, Matthew 6, 12, Matthew 6, 14 through 15, Ephesians 4, uh, 32, Colossians 3, 13, Ephesians 4. Um, I go on and on. And what does that tell you? If the word of God gives you multiple exhortations about forgiveness, what does that tell you? I've taught you this many times. The Bible doesn't give a command that's natural to us. Doesn't need to. I don't read in the Bible. Eat. Don't forget to breathe while having a worship service. You don't have that because we're going to naturally breathe. We're going to naturally eat. The Bible doesn't command us to do what is natural. It always commands us to do what is non-natural. So if you see a command and you go, man, I always fall short of that. I don't like that. It's because it's not natural. We're sinners. And so we're going to naturally rebel. And this is one of those areas that is commanded over and over and over. That should tell you that if you struggle with forgiveness, you are in the right place. Because you're surrounded with people who struggle with forgiveness. We all do. If we all were to stand up and be honest, we'd say, yeah, I've got the mentality. I'm the 10,000 talent. Or better yet, I'm the seven uh, forgiven uh, person. Yeah, I'm a little bit more than three, but I'll forgive someone once or twice more than three maybe five or six times and after that i'll write them off brothers and sisters we all struggle with it we all so what an important exhortation jc Ryle wrote it's a melancholy fact that there are few christian duties so little practice is that of uh, forgiveness it is sad it is sad to see how much bitterness unmercifulness spite hardness and unkindness there is among men 
In fact, in my criminal counseling now, I make this a major, one of our major lessons. You have got to learn how to c- conflict if you're going to live in a world with another person, whether roommates, <laughs> whether in a church, whether in a marriage. You have to know how to conflict healthily, biblically, because you're going to conflict. And if you and I are not men and women moved and carried along by grace... By the, by, by the glorious blessing we've received, 10,000 talents of forgiveness, brothers and sisters, we will have a hard heart and a heart that is quick to notice, take records, count, and notice. Man, you've, you've now hurt me 25 times. God wants a character. He wants his people to be characterized. Now, some have criticized this parable. Liberals have, criti- have uh, criticized, or critics, have criticized this parable because it's so unthinkable. There's no way in a billion years, this is a Gregism, I always say in a billion years, there's no way in a billion years a king would forgive someone 10,000 talents of debt. 10,000 tons of gold, you'd say, eh, no big deal. It's stupid. And then have that person forgiven 10,000 tons of gold to turn around and hold someone accountable to 100 denarii. 100 denarii, serious. It's a, a car, okay? In our culture, it'd be a car. How much you pay for that car? It's a 100 uh, denarii, okay? So it's a, it's, it's a decent debt, but it's not 10,000 tons of gold. And there's, a, in fact, one, one, one author wrote, this amounts to a moral monstrosity. And you know what's incredible? They're right. They're right. For someone to have been forgiven 10,000 tons of gold equivalent to sin and turn around and hold someone to 100 denarii is a moral monstrosity. But we do it all the time. The correlation, let me read it to you. The parable is about a a publicani with a massive debt he could never repay. And as each of us stand before God, we likewise stand before the Lord with a debt we could never repay. Let me make a comment on that. Remember what the definition of sin or what makes sin heinous? What makes sin serious? How serious is sin? Well, it all depends on what you've sinned against. If you sin against a rock, that's not a serious sin. If you sin against an image bearer, you've you've committed a pretty serious sin, but that's a temporal sin. If you commit a sin against an eternal God, that's an eternal sin. So get this, brothers and sisters. Take the greatest sin that could ever be committed against you by a fellow image bearer. And that cannot compare because it's temporal. That cannot compare to an eternal sin against God, no matter how small it may be. Today, this last year, you have lived as a relative angel. Okay, I'm using EE here. You've lived as a relative angel, okay? And you have committed so few sins, you know, you can count them on one hand this entire year. But each of those five sins are eternal sins. Let's say you've only, in your entire life, committed one sin. And that one sin was when you thought you had committed a sin. Okay? You lied or something, right? One sin, but it's, but, but it's against God, it's eternal. That one sin is infinitely bigger than any sin that any image bearer could ever commit against you. 
So the, the parable is about a public colony with a massive debt he could never repay. Why? It's eternal. And as each of us stand before God, we likewise stand before God with a debt we could never repay. And so to have been forgiven this debt we could never repay, an eternal sin, and yet to be unwilling to forgive someone who has sinned against us in a temporal way truly is to commit a moral monstrosity. So I hope you see it. What happens so often in our lives is people hurt us and, and, and it hurts. And we look at what they've done and we say, it's what we always say. I've noticed in, this in counseling. People who are most bitter by people's sin are, are people who think they would never commit that sin. I would never do that. And if I did, it wouldn't be like that. I would never be as in, insensitive as that jerk. I would never be as harsh as that person. I would never do those things, preacher. And you want me to go home to that man? You want me to go home to that woman? I would never do those things. May I'm right in, in, in what I, I'm saying. And, and you have to say, yeah, of course. That would be horribly painful to have someone treat you or say what they said in, in front of all your guests at that time. That would have been horrible. And we would agree with it. But what they don't understand is that that moment, like the publicani, they're so filled with their own righteousness that they think that their sin against God is insignificant in comparison to a man's sin against them. So how do you cultivate this heart, this mind? It is a mind, and that's where God wants us. That's where God's molding us in sanctification. He wants us to be a people who are characterized by compassion, mercy, and grace. He wants us to be a people who are not checking off. How many people, what have you done? Oh, yep, you did it again. He doesn't want that. He wants us to be a people who walk around, freely have received, freely give. Man, God gave me 10,000 get out of frail, get out, 10,000 get out of jail free cards. And our job is just to, you know, you, you know, you were late and you came and you, and you defended it and you hurt me. Get out of jail free card, you know. Um, who else? Who else can I give these to? Ooh, someone else. They cut me off in traffic. My flesh wants to say, go to hell, right? Damned are you because you cut me off and I'll never forgive you. No, get out of jail free card. I've received grace. You receive grace. That's the character. How do we cultivate that? Let me give you three uh, uh, suggestions in closing. One begins with cultivating a high um, view and an accurate view of God. Listen to Exodus 20, 20. It's it's black and white. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to, to temper you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. You know, you and I, the more we grow in our, under, in our apprehension of the greatness of God, and it doesn't matter on what, on, what, on what attribute, the greatness of his holiness, the greatness of his justice, the greatness of his mercy, the greatness of his uh, compassion, the book that we're doing in, in study hour. You're learning all about the greatness of God's gentleness and kindness and uh, compassion. Praise God. Grow, learn as you and I grow in our apprehension of the greatness of God. And that just doesn't mean he's great, but the greatness in specifics, the greatness of his love, how great his love is, his mercy, his kindness, compassion, how your God who's in your presence or you're in his presence at this very moment and with you because you're his child looks upon you with, with, with tenderness and kindness. Do you understand that? In, in spite of the eternal sins that you've committed against him. It's never, uh, uh, it's always grace. 
So the more, so one, grow in your understanding. And that's why I would encourage you, if you're not praying it every day, pray it every day in your times with the Lord. I pray it every day for me, my, my family. God, show me your glory. Show me the substance of your character. And I don't care what, what facet of it is, Lord, any of it. Show me, show us your glory. Floor me with the glory of your goodness. Floor me with the glory of your justice. Floor me with the glory of your holiness. Just show me your goodness. Give me a greater glimpse of you. Secondly, strive to hold an accurate view of self. Romans 12, through the grace given me, I said, every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Brothers and sisters, as I said before, people who have a problem with forgiveness do not have an accurate view of their sin. The moment you realize your sin is eternal, you'll, you, you, will, you will not say it, but you'll mean it when you say, I'm the chief of sinners. Yeah, that person cut me off in traffic or that child was ungrateful, whatever. But I know that just this morning, I've been guilty, just this last, yeah, this morning. How many sins can I count? How many sins can you count right now that you've committed against God? Eternal sins. Yeah, but they're not big. They're not big. They're not like someone being mean to me. No, they're bigger than that because they're eternal. Come to the, to pray, God, open my eyes. Let me see who I am before you. All right? And then lastly, come to know, thus, the daily, the cleansing grace of Christ. Know his goodness. Know his grace. I'm going to close with Titus 3. You'll have it behind me. Paul told Titus, with regards to the people under his care, remind them to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's great. How does that work? Verse 3. For, I mean, this is why. This is how they can do these things. This is how they can be not malign and be um, uncontentious and gentle and, and show a consideration and mercy to all men. This is, this is how. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Notice where he starts. This is who we are were foolish ourselves disobedient deceived enslaved to various lusts and pleasures spending a life in malice and envy hateful and hating one another you say that's not me every time you sin it's against god and if you commit one sin get this brothers and sisters you're guilty of the whole ten ten you commit one of the ten commandments you violate one you're guilty of them all so you are this is a description of you whether you realize it or not you just don't see it yet Okay, malice, envy, hateful, hating uh, one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He didn't save us because of what we did. He saved because of his mercy. So come to understand, how do you grow in verses 1 and 2? Um, being ready for every good deed, not uh, maligning, being un- uncontentious, gentle, showing mercy. How do you do that? By seeing who you are and what God has given you in Christ. Now, I want to say this in closing. I hope everyone here does not leave here thinking there's some areas in your life that God is not pleased with and he's going to get you for. I haven't been very forgiving. I'm, I'm, I, I'm the man. I'm condemned. Brothers and sisters, you, if that's your mind, you'll never, ever be the person God wants you to be. God has forgiven you. You are, there's no uh, condemnation. There, your, your harshness to for, uh, forgive is already forgiven by God. It's already done. What God is after is tempering your and my character that we might live according to what we are. Forgiven by grace. 
So don't leave here in any stretch thinking, man, I, I, I'm, no, brothers and sisters, leave here understanding that God has given you eternal forgiveness. When you confessed your sin, he forgave them all eternally. May God give us the grace just to meditate, meditate, focus upon that, and may that be the very thing, the grace of God instructs us. May that be which impels you and me to being a people, among other things, quick to give mercy, to be mercy and compassionate people. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, this incredible parable, and Lord, how practical it is for us. Thank you, O God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're in the business of transforming us to be a forgiving people. And so thank you, O Lord, that you've not taken us out of the world, but we're in the world, and we're rubbing shoulders with one another and and with people who we don't get along with. And Lord, we might look at you and say, oh God, please take them out of my life, or Lord, please change the circumstances. But Lord, we know that more, more often than not, it's about you changing our character. Lord, we pray by your grace, because of your grace, because of your kindness and your gentleness, may we, your people, be responsive to what we've heard this day, not out of a sense of righteousness or defense, but Lord, may it soften our hearts and make us a people who genuinely can can say, I am the chief of sinners. Everyone I meet is not as sinful as me yet I have received grace by Christ. May that grace be what defines us and may that grace be what impels us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.